This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. My next guest for the morning joins us in the studio all the way from the UK, Javad Alipour. He is here to talk about a work that's being presented by Arts House as part of Melbourne Knowledge Week, a work called The Believers Are But Brothers. Javad, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me. Very great pleasure. So this is a show which is looking at the ease with which young men can be radicalised online. Where did the idea for the show come from? The idea from the show originally came from the... Well, I'm, I'm of, like, uh, sort of dual heritage or mixed-race background, so part of my family are from the Middle East and part are white and English. And um, I was aware that there was, uh, you know, there was some young Muslim men from Europe who were, who were kind of going off or claiming to have gone off, or in some cases actually going off to Syria to go fight for Islamic State over there, so-called Islamic State. And um, I was aware that there was, like, a chat and a conversation around that that felt a little bit not... Not, not very finely grained and it felt a little bit, to be honest, Islamophobic and racist and stuff. And what struck me was that um, on social media, like almost everyone is there. There is no like underground on social media. You can, so I started looking on Twitter and saw that there's a bunch of accounts where people were claiming to have gone to Islamic State and they were tweeting from there. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I thought, well, well look, it's, it's interesting. I, was, I just sent a few messages to some people, thought, well, let's just try and understand how they're talking about what they've done themselves. Um, and as soon as I started digging into it, it just be, it, it struck me that it was an incredibly um, dark, quite funny in a really brutal way set of stories and worlds which had quite a lot to tell us, like in terms of theatrical stories, about where we are right now as a society and it's not I, really I, I joke about like it the the, the 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 show that I wrote the play that I made and that I've taught and it's, it's been all around the world now audiences have it's always we, I feel really lucky it's, it sort of finds its audiences where we go do you know what I mean and um, uh, yeah it's very much a show that I, I joke about it started off uh, you know if the slightly Islamophobic um, line we sometimes get in the press is this question that goes what's the problem with Muslim men Muslim young men as opposed uh, to, to asking what's the problem with young men that, generally uh, that's exactly the point man that's exactly what the show is yeah yeah yeah, yeah. because let's face it there's uh, and as we've seen horrifically in New Zealand yeah. only recently there are plenty of young white men yeah. uh, from uh, who are being radicalised as well and instead of committing terrorist acts in the name of their god they're yeah. committing terrorist acts in the name of white supremacy well uh, that's absolutely right so the show uh, the the narrative part of the show follows the stories of three young men two muslims from the uk and a white boy from the us it particularly looks at how what the not how social media and the internet radicalizes them but like how their journey of radicalization is brought into sharper relief through their internet usage there's a whole bunch of interactivity to the show there's um, a whatsapp group i understand yeah, yeah there's a live whatsapp group that you join and it's a way for the audience to on the one hand have that feeling of being on in the digital world whilst the show is happening and on the other it allows us to play some theatrical games with how the world that the the boys are in begins to get into your phone as well um and and it's um that point that you were making about the 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 masculinity aspect of it it's absolutely right and you 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 know what's interesting when you say people people doing things for their god so one of the things we're at pains to sort of get into is that of those three men in our story there's only one where it's quite typical of those kinds of stories about these kinds of people who get involved with like atrocities of various kinds because only one of them ever gets involved with a group that like seems to have any actual explicit 
politics. So there's a really interesting thing that if you read, I did a whole bunch of research for this, my own, trying to engage with people, working with academics and journalists and stuff. And if you engage with, for instance, the, if you like, the quote-unquote manifestos of the so-called Islamic extremists, you will almost never find a reference of any depth to religion, to the, to, so for instance, the idea of jihad has a huge history in the Islamic tradition. No one ever talks about it in that context. The other thing that those young men never talk about is um, the actual, uh, almost never talk about, is the actual legitimate, uh, if you like, grievances that a lot of quote-unquote Muslim communities face in Western Europe. So no one ever talks about police brutality in their manifestos. No one ever talks about the lack of access to decent jobs. No one ever talks about everyday racism. They just talk in this sense of like burning nihilistic hatred. And funnily enough, what unites the kind of young men who got involved with the Islamic State in, and did terrible things in Europe with the kind of young men who do things like Christchurch, the surest indicator sociologically is a history of domestic or sexual violence. Um, it cuts across everything. Yeah, which reinforces that what we're looking at is... Um, uh it boils down to that sometimes overused phrase, but nonetheless a very important phrase, toxic masculinity, yeah. uh, and how we can uh, find ways to uh, globally uh, help young men kind of deal with their anger, with their rage and their emotions better. Uh, because at the moment, uh, as we've seen uh, with, for example, Gamergate is the, the yeah. classic example, something that began as uh, a group of... Uh, of gamers online, angry, disenfranchised, targeting women, yeah. uh, that then fed into the whole rise of the alt-right movement in the USA. Yeah, that's, that's such an interesting point. I mean, I, I would say like this, I mean, there is a part of me that is an activist and a political person. Um, you know, I did my little bit with Extinction Rebellion in London recently, and it's probably not a surprise to people what my personal politics are, do you know what I mean? But... Um, uh, but the bit of me that is an artist, like a, a political artist, is kind of, it's not my, I feel like it's not my job to be making work that's like lecturing people or hectoring people or trying to tell people what to think. But um, it's about holding a space as a theatre maker where, you know, sometimes we're guilty in theatre as coming off of a bit, as a bit old school, as a bit stuffy, as not necessarily making work, which is about contemporary stuff. And Gamergate is absolutely a part, like is absolutely a narrative moment in this show. Do you know what I mean? Especially for our, you know for our young, young white guy, and um, it's, it's it's great because we get slightly younger audiences than maybe your trad theatre audience, and we get like a there's, there'll be a lovely moment, and I can see I can see this happening in the WhatsApp group because people are talking about it, and people will go like, oh, like you can see this moment, people are going like, oh, hang on, something that's actually just recently happened is in this. You know what I mean, and affects my sort of generation is in this show, and that just sort of holding a bit of a space where. Because I think theatre is really good. What theatre is really good at, what all theatre is really good at, is being the art form where a bunch of people are really physically together in a space. That's what we do. Do you know what I mean? And it seems to me that in terms of like working out what contemporary technology is doing to us, it's really interesting to do that in an art form where we have to be in the same space together. Now, let's talk about that a little bit more. I want to unpack that because, as you say, the communal experience of sharing something in the same room at the same time through theatre is one of the, the powerful, one of the most powerful elements of theatre. Uh, you are collectively gasping, laughing, responding, feeling people, uh, the bodies next to you and sharing that collective experience. Then inserting a digital narrative into that fractures that potentially and pulls people out of the shared experience. How have you negotiated the tension there between wanting people to be together in a room and focused on what's happening, but then also at the same time focused on their phones and uh, interacting and engaging with what's happening in the WhatsApp group that's part of the show? Yeah, I mean, 
for me, that's like um, that's like the, the central challenge of trying to make really of trying to make theatre that feels like contemporary because. Um, it's interesting that, you know, broadly speaking, in terms of arts and culture consumption, I certainly know this is true in the UK and, and America. Um, like, you know, whilst we hear a lot of discussion about how digital technology is like um, kind of uh, messing with a lot of the ways that like the distribution of art works. So like obviously CD sales massively down, streaming massively up. But the reality is there's more of a hunger for liveness than ever before. You know, like gig tickets are like a record highs all over the world and stuff. Like in, you know, in London, more theatre tickets are sold than, than, than tickets to the Football Premier League are. Um, and people, people love that. And that, for me, that... But for, for me what's really important as a theatre maker then is to like mm, is to make work where I never I don't ever want to ask people to sit in a room and pretend they're not really there watching some people who are really there doing something do you know what I mean that feels weird to me given that um, you know I, I make film and tv as well in a, in a different sort of part of my my headspace and like that's the medium where you can do that with people you can ask people to sort of sit quietly and, and disengage in a way. But at the same time, when we watch TV at home now, you know, we're never just watching the TV, are we? We've always got Twitter open to have an argument about what's going on. Or we've got Wikipedia open checking, oh, I recognise that actor, what have I seen him in before? And so really, I, I suppose what it's about is a bit, it's about being a little bit less precious about trying to control every moment of an audience experience and just going, actually audiences are quite bright and like, We'll just do a load of interesting stuff and they can decide what to look at. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they can find their own point to navigate through yeah. what they're being bombarded with, both kind of live and and on the phone. Uh, I've read some reviews of The Believers Are But Brothers from uh, the, the seasons and performances you've done in the UK. Um, it generally seems to have had very, very positive and strong responses, four-star reviews. I found kind of one one-star review, uh, sorry, a two-star review yeah. that talked about uh, the, the use of WhatsApp in computer screens as distracting and yeah. a smokescreen. But the major criticism of that review was the lack of a female voice and a female yeah. perspective in the show. Now, I understand that you tried to, uh, early on in your research, talk to and, and explore kind of stories of women who might... Um, uh, marry a uh, kind of uh, an ISIS member or something yeah. like that, and that was a challenge. Was that a challenge for you to then explore authentically and weave into the show? Yeah, for sure, man. I mean, like, what um, I think in the first instance, like, uh, funnily enough, what actually one of the things that really attracted me to this this, this world was like, I thought, hang on, there's a show in this. Is like seeing a propaganda picture that was tweeted out by a female uh, by a woman who'd married a jihadi, so-called ISIS bride in Syria and it was like a propaganda picture designed to attract other young women, specifically Muslim women, to come to join the so-called caliphate. What the picture was on Twitter, it was incredible. So is this, I, I used to call him the Hollywood Jihadi. So it's this guy, like he looks like a, he looks like a sort of Game of Thrones prince, do you know what I mean? Like pff, ripped, stacked, do you know what I mean? Got it, got massive shoulders, rippling muscles, like uh, one of these bulletproof vests, scarb in quite a sexy way, big beard, massive gun. And then the slogan around it said, where's the effect of sisters? What kind of man do you want? Some flabby guy who works in an office who'll leave you as soon as someone younger walks past or this brother who'll die for you. Um, and yeah, do you know what I mean? And the offer is, that is not the offer that we were being told 
in the mainstream press was quote-unquote attracting people to join that thing. And what that offer was, it wasn't like, um, oh, the Western world is too confusing, retreat to a kind of more simple Islamic past. It was like, um, you know, the multi, uh, leave behind the boring Western world and come and join Game of Thrones, you know? And then um, originally I was going to collaborate with a Muslim woman, Muslim woman, female Muslim by ethnicity artist. She's as, as practically Muslim as I am, so not very. Um, but for a variety of reasons that, you know, her, she wasn't available in the end, whatever. And, and for me, I mean, to be honest with you, man, like part of the reason I make the work I make is to try and intervene into, into such a boring way of putting it. Try, 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 try way, part of the reason I make the work I make is to mess with narratives that I think are not cool and racist and based on stereotypes and this kind of stuff. And I just thought, you know, when, that, when, when, when she fell, fell through, you know, actually my co-director on this show was a, was a white woman, Kirsty Hoosley, who's an absolute genius. But we just thought, do you know what I mean? We were like, we don't want to be more people banging on about what Muslim women think or what Muslim women do. Like, there's enough of that goes on, do you know what I mean? Kirsty might be a woman, I might be a Muslim in some sense, but, like, there ain't a Muslim woman between us. And actually, the, the year that we all opened this show, an amazing, an, an amazing other show opened at the Fringe uh, in 2017 called Diary of a Hounslow Girl that went on to, like, massive acclaim that kind of looked at all this stuff from a female point of view. So it's just someone else's show to make, yeah. do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Now, um, one of the things that uh, reading about uh, the show was the... Um, I guess some of the realities uh, of, of online life when activists are attracted to a cause and, for example, going off to join the so-called Islamic State and they're kind of weedy boys who end up doing IT and, yeah. and pumping out propaganda, not the uh, the whole kind of uh, I am going to be a gun-toting jihadi. The other thing that intrigued me thinking about this was given the research you had to do and the online investigations and interactions you were having as you were researching and developing the show, were you ever worried that the police were going to kick your door down one morning? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I sort of was and I wasn't really. Like, uh, I'm a big believer in democracy, he says. But I am a big believer in democracy. I'm a big believer in the part that art and culture have to play in defending democracy. And we live in a moment when democracy and these things need defending, man. And so, you know, I went about this in a sensible way. So my producer put me in touch with, we made a link with a group called Index on Censorship who work with artists who are quote-unquote on the boundary of that sort of stuff. So we had legal support and stuff and, and a way of talking about the work we were doing. In fact, because of a change in the law in the UK, the the way that I did my research at the time is probably more in a grey area than it used to be now. But, you know, I'm also, I also joke about the fact that I, I have my own privilege, do you know what I mean? So um, I was, you know, I've got, I've got two degrees now and you can Google my name in The Guardian. So like, if the police did go, and why have you been looking at this website? It's sort of a slightly different chat to, you know, if I was um, a still in the work, yeah, yeah, still in the working class neighbourhood in Bradford. I grew up, and no, no, do you know what I mean? No one had, no one had heard of me. In terms of that thing about the um, not quite being the big macho jihadi, the, the that's. I, I just can't let that go because I, I love all that stuff, man. That's that gets me going. So there's a one of the things that, that I found most interesting about this was the stereotype of Brits who, like you know, Brits who'd gone to join the Islamic State amongst other Islamic State fighters, was that they were useless. <laughs> so that was the crack. Like the people had got if they sent an Englishman to do something for you, like the Chechens and the Arabs and the Afghans would be like, oh god, not again. 
And you sort of, you can just imagine that really, because you imagine this guy, the guy who's the military leader of, of uh, operationally for ISIS for until until he was killed for, for many years, was this guy they called, with his codename was the Chechen, and his background was, you know, his family had been killed when the Russians destroyed Grozny. He'd somehow ended up in the Russian army, like from the Russian army, got sent to jail for too much fighting with other soldiers, in jail got radicalised, been to Afghanistan, done tours of duty in the most terrifying wars, do you know what I mean, across the Middle East and South Asia. Asia. And then you get this guy who like rocks up just having worked in a mobile phone shop in somewhere in southern England. And you just go, it is a different world, my friend. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I've been chatting to the show's uh, co-creator, uh, Javad Alipour. Javad, thanks so much for coming in. Pleasure. Thank you. Three Triple R. Thomas M. Wright is... Uh previously to me best known as an actor whether it's uh in films like sweet country and balabo or as a member of the the black lung uh theater and whaling firm uh but has now directed his debut feature film mr wright welcome to triple r thank you thank you very much for having me uh, an absolute pleasure so the film that you have made is acute misfortune um and it's about the australian visual artist adam cullen uh based on, in part, uh, the kind of the memoir that was written kind of uh, about Cullen and about the, the fairly kind of, shall we say, fraught relationship between him and the young journalist Eric Jensen. That's right, that's right. Well, the book, the book, is, a, the book is a biography. The book's very much a kind of fractured biography of Adam, extremely difficult to adapt, actually. There's no sense of linear time. It's... It's chaptered sort of thematically, and and kind of uh, an investigation into into Cullen. Um, Eric spent the last four years of Adam's life on and off with Adam. Adam died at forty six from complications from alcohol abuse, really, but from various ailments that came to kind of um, trouble him over the last years of his life. Um, and the the film is really an attempt to contextualise that relationship and look at that relationship, which was a very violent, very difficult relationship. Adam shot his biographer, Eric, in the leg with a shotgun and he threw him off a motorbike in the middle of nowhere and the film is about why Eric remained or the question of why Eric remained and why he continued to write and... Um, and, and and I'd really consider it a dual portrait. It's certainly not a traditional biopic of Adam, like, oh, this is how he learned to paint and this was his moment of inspiration. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a really unconventional f- film uh, in, in, in that way, actually. Um, why did you want to make it? Why, and, and why did you want to go from being an actor to a director? Well, I was always a director with Black Lung. Lung. Black, Black Lung I founded when I was 22 and... And um, and so I'd always been involved with telling ninety-minute stories, longer stories. Um, and but directing for the stage and directing for film are quite. It's different. extremely different. But then I spent the last six years working full time as an actor in film. So I did Top of the Lake with Jane Campion, and out of that, I found myself working in the States and Europe for the next five years, pretty consistently. Oh, well, yeah, really without a break, and then came back and made Sweet Country with Warwick. And all that time, um, I was I was writing. Um, I wrote a couple of films and um, and the desire was certainly there for me to turn my hand to that medium. The thing about directing um, film is that it's completely all-encompassing. I can't... It's an extraordinarily challenging role because you need so many contradictory skills and 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 um 
and you know a lot of knowledge on a lot of different fronts so I, I love the idea of the challenge and I've always just loved I've always just completely adored cinema and been obsessed with cinema so I just desperately wanted to sort of speak the language of the people that spoke to me through through my whole my whole life my whole upbringing it's wonderful I've got a little seven-year-old now and you can just feel him starting to latch onto the medium it's so transportative and it's such a machine of empathy when you're young I think it it teaches you to see through other eyes and that sort of takes me back to your question which was why why this story and, and it was because I read an excerpt from Eric's book and it made me extraordinarily angry and really angry really angry at Adam's behavior really angry at his attitudes and angry at the idea that he was this extraordinarily successful person um, and those ideas and voicing those ideas very openly and things like you know I mean, it's it's this is Adam's, you know, sort of controversial behaviour, but tattooing a swastika on his arm. But this is a guy who Malcolm and Lucy Turnbull own his paintings. His paintings hang in every major gallery in Australia. And and so there was that coupled with the extraordinary momentum in his demise, the velocity of his self-destruction, and and then this relationship with this much younger man from a very different background from a from an uh, from an art form that has a completely different agenda you know where where the art world applies multiple meanings to things and ventures into realms of abstraction and applying different meanings to symbols um journalism is about finding absolute concrete truths and when you put those two things together you just got this unholy cocktail of these two people and a really and really such a such an awful but sort of beautiful relationship too that formed between them now um the 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 book itself, uh, Eric's book, is is exquisitely written, and I had him on the show, I think, four or five years ago when right. it was first released. Um, and watching the film, I haven't seen it at the cinema, so I uh-huh. was given a, a, a Vimeo preview. You link. must see it at the cinema, though. Uh, that's it's, why I stopped watching it. I, I got about 40 <laughs> minutes in and I went... I've seen enough that I can contextualise it and have a conversation, but mm. I want to see it in a cinema. I it's want a, to see it on a, a big it's screen. It's a highly cinematic film. This film was made on an extraordinarily low budget, but a number of people who were involved in the financing of the film and the making of the film have commented on the fact that they've never seen money put to work so well on screen. We, we, um, you have two cinematographers. Two cinematographers, that's right. And what happened there was Jermaine McMicking, who was the original cinematographer, we knew was going to have to go and shoot True Detective Season 3. So we thought we'd find a way to express that in the kind of form of the film because what happens with the film is that you begin with these elaborate lies and through the film you rip through these kind of husks to get closer and closer and closer to the person underneath and we thought there was a really interesting contrast there with working with a cinematographer like Stefan Ducio who's also one of the top cinematographers in the country phenomenal DOP who um but who but who has a slightly different aesthetic works with less lights works with less equipment higher contrast more paired back and we knew that was something we were going to try to do so it's not quite Rolf to hear who I think used 17 on bad boy Bubby but it's a it's a it's a you know it was an interesting part of the conversation now let's talk about uh one of the things that is central to the film perhaps uh which is Cullen and his behaviour and the way that he's lionised by the art world, but he's a shit of a man yeah. on so many levels. He really could be. He really, really could be. He he indulged in some of the worst um, of the sort of behaviour that can be applauded in this uh, country. And you know, he was he was violent to his former partners. Um, he was violent toward his parents. Um, he was obviously extraordinarily violent toward himself. 
Um, but yeah, he he could be he could be racist and and objectionable in in any um, number of ways. I don't think that stuff was necessarily forgiven by the art world at all. I think there was a lot of people who were furiously angry at him. But it, but it was somehow it's somehow implicitly tolerated by the fact that his paintings are still selling for fifteen to twenty thousand dollars each, and there's of course a huge towering uh, modernist bloody you know it's not modernist hotel over in South Yarra, in, which bears his name, the Cullen Hotel, which a lot of people know him for, and also he won the Archibald Prize with his portrait of David Wenham, which was actually a portrait of David Wenham in character as Brett Sprague, one of Anita Cobby's killers from um, Rowan Woods' film The Boys, which Robert Connolly produced, who also produced this film. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like, to a degree, you're contributing to Adam Cullen's reputation and legend or are no. you actively trying to kind of interrogate it? Because I don't think... I think, you know, like, there can always be that sort of comment. I think it's a little bit simplistic, that sort of thing of by depicting something, you're somehow implicitly encouraging it. But, you know, train spotting might have made some people want to go and shoot up. I don't think anyone leaves acute misfortune wanting to um, do what Adam did or um, thinking that it somehow condoned his behaviour. But at the same time, it's very tricky to make a film like this because it's too easy to damn him. It's too easy to damn someone like Adam. And what I was interested in looking at was the fact that there are cultural structures in place that support this sort of behaviour, that encourage it, that create the space for it. But there's an archetype Particularly there. in the art world, the theatre world, the film world. Absolutely. The, the we see that all the time, the celebration of eccentricity and individuality that can border on kind of like, you know, pathological... Um, you know, abusive behaviour or anything like that. But, you know, I, I do think that's a part of the conversation in this film, mm. but I don't think it it defines it. I was, I, you know, like I have to say I was, I, I feel very happy that we made this film, um, especially with everything that's started to change with people's, you know, um, you know, awareness and perception and the lens that's changing about how we view culture and how we discuss culture. I, I felt that this film was very much a contribution to that sort of discussion, you know. Um yeah, because Adam, because Adam, you know, styled himself as this kind of wild man. He surrounded himself with firearms, and his best friends were Chopper Reed and Charles Water Street and Roger Rogerson and these kind of larger-than-life criminal rogue type characters. Um, and I was interested in the film, as I said, as a kind of conversation with the culture, because a film like Chopper. Um, I wanted to be in dialogue with because I, I, I love Chopper. I think it's an extraordinary film and an extraordinarily immoral film in depicting someone like like Chopper. And it has that byline, the just genius, never let the truth get in the way of a good yarn. Um, but unfortunately that couldn't be applied to Adam's story because yeah. the truth very much got in the way of it. So it forced us into a different form. It forced us into a different conversation. And Now talk to us about the conversation between you and Eric Jensen because the two of you have co-written the script based on, on Eric's book. And I understand that there was some fairly fraught conversations as part of that Look, because I, the push and the pull of yeah. who is representing what story and what truth? Yeah, I think, you know, it's probably not so much that it was fraught as just that Eric and I are both very... Com we're both combative. We both believe in, um, you know, the integrity behind what we're doing. We were always driven by the work. It was not an ego... Um, an, an egoistic argument that was happening between us, but it was... Um, but it was a very um, tough process because you're dragging Eric back into a traumatic time for him. 
um, you know, the book was probably an opportunity for him to resolve some of that and to take it away from himself and depersonalise it and process it and talk about Adam in the th- third person. Um, but but the, the film dragged him back in and questioned how, you know, he was implicit and complicit in this relationship, in questioning the motivations, questioning you know, the conclusions of the book and not actively because I think Eric's conclusions are are faithful to his perception. I don't think there are any distortions there. But, um, but you know, as a provocation, as a piece of writing, we had to consider that this book, the biography of Adam, could be an act of revenge but could equally be an act of love or an act of devotion. And somewhere in between those two points on the spectrum, the truth lay. But we wanted to make a film that was about questions, that was about about putting the audience in a position of almost making them a detective in the story, a literary detective story where they were trying to work out what was real, what wasn't, where every image in the film becomes like a key or a clue to drawing closer to Adam and to drawing closer to Eric because it's a mistake to think that this film is only a depiction of Adam's masculinity because it's loud, it's objectionable, it takes up the oxygen in the room, but it's not. He's not the protagonist of the film. Eric is. We're seeing him through a certain lens and through the dynamics of that relationship and, um, and as I said, trying to get to the core of why, why this has happened. I'm speaking with director Thomas M. Wright about the feature film Acute Misfortune, which is showing in cinemas now. Uh, you can catch it at Cinema Nova Carlton, the Sun Theatre in Yarraville, and the classic cinemas at Elstonwick, and I'll uh, give those details again at the end of our conversation. Thomas, to come back to uh, the transition for you from theatre director to film director, theatre is a very collaborative art form. Kind of, you it's might... too collaborative sometimes. <laughs> it's pretty tough. Uh, uh, and I just, what I was curious about, I guess, was as a film director there's much more of a sense of the f- the film director not necessarily as auteur but the filmmaker kind of is saying to the designers I want this I'm casting it's, it's the just, actors it's just easier to compartmentalize that was one of the things that drew to me it's 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 true that your hand is in everything in a much more intense way you know every second of a film is touched dozens and dozens and dozens of times and molded to create the impression of 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 chance and and happenstance and whatever the feeling is that you want to grasp but i was i always found theater very confronting i mean you know because you just go into a room and um and you're the dynamics between people are extraordinarily difficult to manage um, with Black Lung, it was just endless rows and arguments and relationships falling apart all over the place, and we, you know, love each other dearly. But my God, it's just—I don't—I don't know how you manage that environment without a kind of hierarchy, which in that room becomes very, very uncomfortable. With film, it's such an exhaustive, massive process that the script really becomes the, you know, defining thing. You, the script becomes the bible that everybody has to follow, and as a writer director. You have an opportunity to 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 really mould it from from those very early days, um, and uh, and then sort of you know enacting that or trying to to capture that, 
um, is a little bit more manageable, even even though it's total chaos. It's you know somehow compared to theatre. I just I just loved it. I love like I said all the different components photographically, and this is a film I'm very proud of photographically. It's shot in the old Academy ratio, one three seven to one, which is a much squarer ratio than we normally see now. And that was a form and content question. And that's the great thing that theatre gives you is that question of like what's the form, what's the content, and how are they how do they become inseparable from one another? How do you almost make that like a three dimensional thing? And that that aspect ratio gave us a sense of claustrophobia. It gave us a sense of classicism. It gave us a sense of always being in a tunnel, always heading somewhere because there's this great sense of inevitability hanging over the film. And plus it's a format for portraiture. It mirrors Adam's canvases and it makes the faces in the frame, the landscapes, so that you're diving into people, you're investigating the, the people um, at the centre of this story. Now, it is on one level a biopic about an artist and often biopics are dreadfully unsuccessful because human lives don't fit into the narrative beats and structures of film. The best and most successful biopics tend to focus on a moment in somebody's life, a transformative moment or a pivotal moment. Uh, off air, just before we uh, started this conversation, uh, the, the, the part of it that the listeners have heard, you mentioned that this is one of the few biopics about an Australian artist. It's extraordinarily rare to talk about art or even to talk about journalism in Australian cinema. It rarely happens that we venture into this sort of terrain. I think we were t- putting our heads together and talking about it the other day and the last two films about an artist we could think of in Australia were Shine and Sirens. And Sirens is obviously a pretty cynical, you know pretty cynical film so to have a film that's really trying to talk about how culture is reflected through art how it's represented how it's discussed how we receive information about how we're supposed to be and the space that we kind of accommodate for our archetypes of you know i just thought it was i thought it was fascinating because these two people are such extreme examples of um of their art forms both eric and adam because of course eric you know went on to found the saturday paper at the age of 24 he's the definition of you know the kind of young genius, literature, you know, literary figure. Um, and, and Adam, this obstreperous, nightmarish, heroin adult, you know, violent, you know, artist, you know. I mean, I just thought behind, behind those surfaces is something, um, something much more interesting ticking away and something that they've learnt, you know, because we learn what to desire, we learn what culture is we learn how to be men or we how learn. to present ourselves that's right or yeah. how to be women or how to be anybody we, re- we receive this information in implicit insidious ways and it plays itself out in our in our lives um and um and i was and i was fascinated by that and the film is very much like if adam's life is a crime scene um which in some ways it becomes because of the way that he ended it then the film is about you know trying to solve that crime trying to come to understand why it happened. Film. Uh, I've been speaking to its director, Thomas M. Wright. Thomas, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, mate. Putting funk in your trunk. Three triple R. I'm joined by Art Centre Melbourne's Director of Programming, Edwina Lunn, and performer Candy Bowers, who, together with her sister, is performing One the Bear uh, as part of Big World Up Close. Edwina, what is this program? Uh, It's a curated series of theatre works. It's our third year of putting this program together uh, where we have tried to come together with... We've got six six shows this year that are what we think reasonably fearless. 
works that represent and give voice to voices that you don't often see or hear on main stage theatres or, you know, to be fair, television and film as well. And this is our third year. It's really quite successful. And to be honest, we could have programmed this three times over. Um, and it's a mixture of both Australian theatre works and international theatre works. And this year we've also included two works for young people and families. And that one of those is Candy's new work, One the Bear. Candy, tell us a little bit more about Wonder Bear. So it's you and Kim Busty Beats. Oh, no, no, Busty did the sound. Busty did the sound. Yeah, okay, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So all we same collaboration, Black Honey Company. Yeah. Um, we're a bit busy, so we're <laughs> doing some different things. But, um, yeah, Wonder Bear, a fairy tale for the hip-hop generation, is something after, you know, creating Hot Brown Honey and all those shows, very adult shows in a lot of ways. I really wanted to do something for the next generation of queens. And I... Uh, I was seeded to to actually make the show in Campbelltown, my hometown. Campbelltown Arts Centre said, let's make an edgy work for young people. And I said, well, let me hang out with my young people in the town that I grew up in. And that was amazing. It was absolutely incredible. And I learned so much from them. Uh, they're all on these edges. They're all liquid, non-binary, trans kids, all the kids on the edges, like which is basically how I grew up, but we didn't have any terms for it. And, um, and so I based a lot of the work on that, those experiences. And so that's why it's become uh, really quickly a sci-fi fantasy because they said, if you show me directly, I'll probably stick a, a, you know, a needle, in, a my needle eye. in my eye. So we, we went into the depths of fantasy and this is a real like um, dreamscape space. It's Afrofuturism. It's where um, sort of intersectional feminism and the pop hip-hop culture of Nicki Minaj and Cardi B and Childish Gambino come together and I wanted to create something where young people can watch it and sort of reflect back on themselves but it's allegorical which is our favourite you know in this sort of the, the radical black feminist space. Uh, it's a poetic work, it's it's musical, it's hip-hop from beginning to end and um it's, it's been really interesting. I've had a paper written by Christine Hutton that's gone out into a, some academic American um, youth in education space, which uh, talks about it being a, a spearhead for the theatre in education space or theatre for young people as a decolonial framework. That's what's possible because it pushes all those boundaries and it pushes young people to ask not only where they are now but where they've been and and what's ahead so sort of like you know we talk about being our ancestors wildest dreams but are we if we're um commodified and exploiting and consumer and all that stuff so and i think that that's what really links into the big world up close programming across the board is this conversation between our sort of ancestral um roots to contemporary diasporic voice so whether it's for my the, Af the african diaspora or um i mean jacob bohem's work that's in the work blood on the dance floor to about mooses this is really really strong yeah? yeah and dear woman as well i would say from canada i've only read about it haven't seen that one so there's just a feeling of like where are we on this trajectory and how do we exist today where our law is no longer uh, the law of the land, where we're dealing with crown law or et cetera, but our law is still deeply within us of what's right and wrong, ethics, all that stuff. But really my work, people always go, it's so cute, it's so warm, these characters are so lovable. And I think um, I took a lot, I take a lot of like um, 
inspiration from artists like Nick Cave, the African-American queer installation artist, I should say, <laughs> um, who's creating whimsy and, and optimism with a really strong, solid sort of political message at its core. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the space I love where people can walk in not unlike um, the first artwork I was commissioned to do again by Campbelltown, King Shit and Lady Muck, Decolonise the Fuck Out. It looks like satire and fun, but underneath there's like, you know, there's always bigger messages. And hopefully, I think from the whole program, it's about raising consciousness and human connectivity. In terms of putting this program together, Edwina, with you and the, the team at Art Centre Melbourne, works that are going to be kind of intersectu- intersectional, provocative, uh, kind of informing, engaging. I guess there's always the risk that kind of that works could sometimes fall into a more didactic territory. How important has it been for you to make sure that these are strong quality artworks that speak with a powerful message but speak kind of artistically rather than in a way that's hectoring? Well, there's there's absolutely no doubt that it's a they're political works and just by making a piece of work if you're a woman or if you're a black person or is instantly makes what your voice and what you have to say political and so it was important for us that when we looked at um, putting this program together that it had a diversity of stories and storytelling and art forms as well and that it was empowering for both the um, artists but also for audiences um, it was important for us for our very diverse and broad audience we are a place for you know all Victorians that um, people would see themselves and their own perspectives reflected on stage and if you start from that premise then there is um, then, then you can only you can only seek out stories that are genuine and artists that are telling something that is not only an important story for them but something that we need to reflect on within our own community and and the example I'll give you an example of the work Dear Woman which comes from Canada <clears throat> which is the story of a sister whose um, whose sister is missing and presumed murdered and she um, is an Indigenous woman and they come from a, a place in the country where there are about 1,600 missing girls or women presumed murdered. They are registered as missing and murdered but no one's doing anything about them and presumably that's because they are Indigenous. And it's a very powerful piece of work. It has been presented in other places around the world and that we're, we're presenting this time. But it's an interesting reflection on um, the fact that, that I now know that statistic about about Canada, this place in Canada, but I don't know that statistic in Australia. And presumably we would have similar statistics of Indigenous women from community and girls who are missing presumed presumed dead and we're not looking and the for authorities them. aren't, aren't yeah, engaged. yeah and yeah. we don't and we don't know that statistic so in in some ways many of these stories and what we put on our stages is meant to help us reflect on where we sit politically within our own community and what we do and don't know about the reality of, of the world around us but I was going to add to that though what you were sort of saying Richard also that's a suspense thriller that piece yeah so and similar to mine like a lot of people who just love music come um, so it's sort of like, what do you get when you, why does This Is America go viral? Like, why does Childish Gambino, it's not only, it's it's doing the very thing it says it's doing inside of the work. It's such a work of ingenuity because you can still party and dance to that track, but you can't get away from the image if you watch the clip of people getting shot and, you know. And so that's where I think this sort of work 
um, is the most exciting work that goes on. And I always say that to my students. Like, they ask me, what's the one thing should I do? And I say, get out of Australia, go to Edinburgh, go to Asia, get a work on somewhere else in the world. And here is the few um, spaces where you get the whole, like the world in a season coming through to you. But also for so many of us who are di- from d- different diasporas, we don't get to see that, you know. So again, this, this season is um, bridging that gap quite a bit and allowing us to keep finding and striving ways to push up into mainstream and be... Um, it's so funny, I never thought that just putting a show on was disruptive. Like, I didn't, I've never thought that. Like, just putting on a show. But having kind of travelled the world a bit more and getting a great understanding of it, taking up space in those and being centre stage in those spaces, it's, um, it's really important and it impacts. It impacts in a huge way on the community. And if we want to talk about... Um entertainment and fun and a show that's full of heart and humour, we'd talk about the Modern Maori Quartet who are bringing their work um, to Worlds. And this is the first time Modern Maori Quartet have been to Melbourne, which I find really surprising because there's probably not a single New Zealander who lives in Melbourne who doesn't know who they are. And they are um, Kiwi and Maori's answer to um, a boy band, (laughs) a very attractive boy band in in suits, no less, who can harmonise themselves to bits. But this is a, and this isn't just a a concert of their beautiful songs and harmonisation, this is a story about living in two worlds. Mm. Um, And it is about their Maori culture, but it is full of so much um, of that gorgeous Kiwi humour um, that it, it fits really well into this this series and this program but it's a, it's a, it's a balance also to some of the more serious um, theatrical works that we've got in the program too. And also kind of the fact that you've uh, programmed uh, the work uh, Between Tiny Cities as well mm, which yeah. I saw at Dance Massive a couple of mm. years ago and adored uh, and because it, it's a, a work a kind of cross-cultural work uh, made between Australia and Cambodia yeah. uh, and using hip-hop, the language of hip-hop, as a shared language mm-hmm. to say it doesn't matter which country you, you come from, yeah. that you can, you can find a common tongue, a common language. Mm. And it was one of those shows when I saw it at Dance Massive. Yeah, it, it's kind of like a formal dance piece on one level, but I found myself standing and, and kind of like grooving to the music and kind of it's engaging yeah. and electrifying. And it's being built here as, as a work for families, which yeah, I love is. as well because it's, yeah. it is, it's a, a work of contemporary dance, but it's an incredibly accessible and engaging piece as well. well and the audience stands in a, in a circle and the performance happens within that circle. It is, it is so close to you and there are moments where you feel like you need to flinch and, and step back from the circle but it's and the reason why we know it's going to be great for families and young people is because it is so close and it is um and it is a dance language but it is full of um again it, it's full of humor did richard did it make you laugh oh absolutely yeah, yeah. is it it's, and it's a call and response like mm. a um a b-boy battle uh, and so they, these two, these two young men are, are dancing, and it's a dance. It's a, it's a hip hop battle against each other, and they are challenging each other with each dance movement, which they then have to repeat and then take it up a notch. And it just gets more and more ridiculous, but physically challenging and to the point where they themselves can't breathe. <laughs> they need water. They can't stop laughing themselves, and it's infectious for the audience, which is why it's a great work for young people too. And it's also uh, a joyous work in its interrogation of masculinity it's mm. kind of it's playing with kind of the macho bravado of hip-hop and then taking that somewhere else as well which uh, is one of the, the other reasons I adored it and I'll have to make sure that I get the the, the two dancers and maybe the choreographer Nick Power yes. on the show kind of yeah. later in the yeah. year um, but 
one of the other works in the in the program which I saw up at uh, Darwin Festival last year, um, Omar Musa's Since Ali Died, which was I think originally mm. created for a uh, for Griffin Theatre. Mm. Um, uh, Candy, I might get you yeah. to speak to this one. Omar is kind of a spoken word artist, poet, also some rapping and music Perfect. and song, yeah. Yeah. Um, and a, a bloody fantastic storyteller. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I'm excited about this program because it's sort of like, um, you know, it's all the stuff I dream about and I dreamt about as a young person seeing. Omar's someone I came across pretty early on because we, like, roll in the same circles. Um, spoken word theatre at its, like, heart. And storytelling through uh, oh, all of the wonderful forms that that speak back and forth to each other, and I think that yeah, once again, I think it's so smart. I I know I'm involved in it, but I think it's so smart of the art centre to realise the connection between families and young people and the big world up close program, because we're speaking languages that this new audience really need to hear and love to hear it in that way. I don't think you could. I don't know what a a more sort of Anglo traditional work would look like reimagined in a like you know how it was like reimagining classics with black faces in it. That's just not it for me. It just isn't. This is it. So you get a work. You get you get the writer, the artist. You know, coming direct and forward. Omar's also a visual artist. I mean, in my work, my team is mainly people of colour. Jason Wing, the Aboriginal Chinese uh, visual artist, did my set. These things are like speaking back and forth to First Nations all intricately and that's why it's whole and real. So, you know, when you talk about um, those two works, Nick's work and and Omer's work, it just reminds me again, bring your your sons, bring your nephews. Um, Young men need to, I think right now, are crying out for to see themselves reflected and hear from themselves. Uh, But at the same time, I'm like... You know, again, bring them to the whole thing. Like, imagine if you brought your nephew to see Omer's work and then to see Dear Women, Dear Woman, sorry. That would just be an incredible conscious raising experience, but full heart, full love, full fierceness to think, uh, you know, we are all and we are everything in this world, but there's so many voices in this that I think, yeah, bring your, bring your, it's an intergenerational experience. Bring your kids. The Big World Up Close program is presented by Arts Centre Melbourne. It's running from the 10th of July until the 1st of September and you can book at artscentremelbourne.com.au. The other work we haven't spoken about, we've only got about five minutes left in the show so we're going to have to wrap up shortly, but I'm so glad Blood on the Dance Floor has been programmed there because I missed its original Melbourne run and since then it's been on at other festivals around the the country or overseas and I've not seen it. So, uh, uh, And it's an exploration by Jacob Bowen, choreographer, dancer, writer about kind of queer, Aboriginal, HIV positive identity. It's a dance piece. There's monologue. Uh, I've heard so much about it. So I'm really glad that it's been programmed. And thank you for the chance to see it again. Well, we're excited. And Jacob's also working with us on um, some associated programming around forums and talks and discussions around some of those issues that that he raises within um, this work too. But yeah, it's a comprehensive program. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, Six. We probably could have put ten in, but six this year. Ten next there'll year. be another there'll be another six next yeah. year. Yeah. yeah. I've been chatting with Edwina Lund from Arts Centre Melbourne and performer Candy Bowers. Thank you both so much for coming in. Thanks Thank for having you. us. Make your Make mind, mind mellow. mellow. Three triple R. 
This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.